I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you want to support the work that I do on Stageworthy, you can do that by leaving a tip, either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Your support helps me cover the cost of making this show, helps expand the show, and more. You can find a link to the digital tip jar in the show notes, which you can find on your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. My guest this week is Curtis Campbell. Curtis is a writer and theater artist based in Toronto. He joined me to talk about Gay for Pay with Blake and Clay at the Streetcar Crow's Nest from November 16th to 27th, growing up in a town with no theater program at school, promoting theater in a rapidly changing media landscape, and much more. Here's our conversation. Curtis, welcome to Stageworthy. Thanks so much for, for giving me uh, some of your time today. Um, so you describe yourself as a writer and theater artist. Um, one of the things I, I mean, I describe myself as a, as, a, as a performer. Other people describe themselves as a theater maker, as a theater artist. To you, what does theater artist mean? Uh, it means I don't want to spend a good five minutes um, divulging uh every last bit of detail about the many things I am forced to do in this industry. Uh, so I sum it all up with theater artist. Because uh, you don't need to know that I, I spent last night sending out a bunch of press releases because I'm kind of like ostensibly the producer of the thing, you know? <laughs> like, it's not really fun to listen to. I think theater artist uh, is, a, is a lovely umbrella term. Uh, for the most part, for me, it just means I write and, and direct uh, my own theater. Um, when did you, I mean, this is, the, I think it's, it's become a very necessary part of, of everyone's theater arsenal, the, the need to, to create your own work. For you, what, what, uh, what first uh, uh, drove you or sparked the desire to uh, write and create your own work? Probably the money. Probably the money. Uh, there's just so much of it. Um, I, uh, oh my goodness. It, um, I started writing my own silly little plays when I was in high school. Um, my theater didn't, my, my high school did not have a drama department. Uh, so I elected to become the drama department and rule with an iron fist uh, and uh, discovered a love for um you know, ruling with said iron fist. Uh, so it all sort of, um, that sort of became it for me. Why, why, why did your school not have a theater program? Like not even like theater arts, not an English teacher teaching theater, nothing. No, I'm, I'm from a very small town, uh, in, uh, Southwestern Ontario, uh, with a, you know, I, the, the little strip of land that I am from is like the, if you know, uh, we're on a theater podcast, so we'll just we'll name names. Uh, like the Stratford Festival, Blythe Festival, um, Grand Bend, uh, Playhouse are sort of the the theater things going on, but it's very summer stock theater. Um, and the uh, a friend of mine described my high school very aptly once uh, by saying that we were a sports school, but not the sports school, uh, and that's. <laughs> That stuck with me, uh, and we we uh, we had one. Um, we had you know a uh, English slash drama teacher who was sort of holding it all together. By the time he retired, but by the time I rolled around, that had all gone to shit. I, I remember the drama room becoming um, storage for the uh, the gym department. 
they just decided they weren't even going to put any effort into it anymore. No, 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 nothing. No, <laughs> no, 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 nothing. No. How much, how much of a struggle were it, was it for you to get back into that theater room and to, to start the theater program or the theater club back up again? Oh, I did so many things in that theater room that I should not um, have been doing uh, on school property. Uh, but um, it was interesting. It was one of those, um, we just sort of started doing it and we were lucky enough that a um, total ally of a uh, math teacher um, took pity on us and sort of signed our paperwork. Um, and we just sort of did our own thing. And then we um, won a bunch of awards and uh, at the, at the, the, the formerly known as the Sears drama festival, um, and that was sort of when the administration was like, oh, this, you know, I guess this is something they did sort of take notice of us at that point after we had, of course, proven ourselves able to do it. Um, but it was like just me and my buds and people that I could wrangle into it just being like, I wrote a thing. Let's do it. Um, you know, and all high school theater is excellent theater. So I really should bring those scripts back one of these days. I I do hear a little bit of sarcasm in your voice, I, uh, but you were creating those those shows at that point. What uh, what kind of what kind of topics were you were you dealing with, or were you just like throwing anything at the wall? No, they were pretty. Um, like it was all from a very. I, I I remember at the time being very aware of, like you would go. I remember one of the. Um, we beat Stratford one year um, at Sears, which they were mad about because who the fuck are these country bumpkins? But the play that they had, they had done an original play that was a bank robbery. Uh, it was like this like uh, high stakes thriller about a bank robbery. Um, and, you know, like police officers, like, you know, a mother of two uh, written by, you know, like a 17 year old. And I, I just remember seeing stuff like that before and being like, I don't know. Like, I don't know about those things. I, I am 15 years old. I don't know. Um, so, it, you know, we were writing very, or I, I was writing very um, things for, you know, to, to perform for my own age. Um, some like, you know, fun little sci-fi stuff and some like two-hander um dramas like real time two hander sort of like gay saltwater moon uh with swearing um uh you know just sort of the the things that were sparking my interest at the time but um yeah it was i, I do remember being that age and being like um it's so fun that you wanted to have a gun on stage Brad but um i don't know if it holds up <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of that <laughs> all right um now you leave high school and 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 uh you're 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 you know heading out into the world what where where do you go to study theater did you study theater what was the the journey that started you to where you are now I went to York University um, because I could hold that fork and off I trot to hold that fork at York. Um, and I knew that I wanted a university program that was a theater program. I, I didn't, I wasn't overly interested in being um, sort of locked in any sort of conservatory style thing. Um, hmm. And uh which is kind of interesting because then you go and you, you know, if you're a student like me, you're only really able to focus on the immediate things that are of direct interest to you. And so the larger university education that you're getting does sort of fall to the wayside, um, unfortunately. Uh, but I went to York and met a bunch of really cool people and, you know, kept on that path of like self-producing my own plays. Um, and one day I may stop that and someone else may produce them, but we'll see um now i know i know now york has uh programs in devised theater and things like that was that something they were doing then or yeah uh, 
Yeah, okay. I did. Um, I it really was the you know York is a um, sh you know, a total charcuterie board of good and bad things. Um, but I uh, my sort of build it yourself degree was focused on device theater uh, and uh, playwriting. Uh, so those two tracks. Uh, so I studied uh, under Judith Rudikoff in the playwriting area of York uh, and was sort of in that little intense bubble as well. Um, so here's a question for you. Um, as, as, as far as like, like, like doing that, that, that program, um, and going to a university rather than a conservatory program, when you left the school, did you, did you feel, um, uh, prepared for the industry or, or, cause I went through a conservatory program that had like a business of acting program and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm curious about the university experience. Yeah. I mean, York, while I was there, like they really do value the prestige parts of it, which are the acting conservatory. And those are where the resources go. So we were in a very DIY um, part of the program, um, which is great because, I mean, it's awful. And then there are really great parts of it. I think the best, the most talented people I know are the most... Um, uh, uh, you know, I think the, the 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 most clever people I know came out of that and were very ready to um, be resourceful when it came to you know making their work and actually creating stuff. Uh, but yeah, it was a it was a fairly figured out for yourself in terms of the industry stuff, but the well, actually, that's not true. Judith Rudikoff very much prepared you for the industry, um, very much so, um, and is is just a wonderful teacher in many regards, and that being one of them. Uh, but I was really making a point to start dipping my toes out into the industry and into the the community before. I, I, I was always very worried about that jump between fourth year and being in the industry. And so I started sort of trying to close that gap while I was in it. Um, so like I was working, you know, I was working my sort of part-time, I was working part-time job at Buddies and Bad Times. Um, I was, you know, f fairly involved with the um, mid to end of Video Fag. Uh, we had started, some friends and I had started producing our own stuff downtown come third year like we were really trying to by the end of it we were trying to be i was trying to be out and about so that it would feel like my degree had come to a close and it was just time to keep going but it's you know it's sort of a conscious choice you have to make i think sure yeah i mean because you can wait too like you can be like i i should because I, I, sometimes schools frown on that sort of stuff like they frown on you I know uh, the school I went to um, didn't want us doing too much outside of the school until we were done. Um, yeah, I think if York had paid any attention to me, they might have, but um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it was not the case. Um, no, I mean we. So I studied. Um, on it was Michael Gray Eyes and Moynihan King um, were running the device theater program at the time, I believe. Um, and, you know, they were very, um, they were very pleased to see me out in, you know, seeing me at shows, seeing me putting out my own work and sending them invites and stuff. Um, but, you know, I think Moynin, um has always been the, the type of artist to just, you know, find a fucking way to make the thing happen. Um, so... They, they seemed pleased. Uh, I know the acting conservatory, it was quite a different, uh, it was quite a different story. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, um, this is an industry now that sort of needs a lot of people who are, you know, they see a need and they make shit happen, right? This is like what we do now. It's 
the way that you get started or even like that can be your whole career. Like I know people who the fringe circuit has essentially been their career and they're quite yeah. happy with that. Yeah. You know? Speaking of fringe and, you know, other future endeavors, tell me about gay for play. Sorry. Gay for pay with Blake and Clay. Gay for pay with Blake and Clay. Uh, it is an acting seminar in which Blake and Clay, two well-seasoned gay actors, um, teach a room full of straight actors how to convincingly and responsibly play gay roles, play gay roles. Uh, because if they're not going to get cast, um, I guess it's fine if straight men are, you know, <laughs> and we'll, we'll, um, we'll teach you how. Uh, the the tagline for this show is representation matters, but their representation hasn't called them in ages. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, now this this show did play at the twenty twenty two Toronto Fringe. Um, so, uh, what did you learn about this show uh, at Fringe, and uh, has that uh, uh, changed this show moving forward into its next iteration? Yeah, quite, quite. There's some some pretty big differences. There was uh, there's been a, a quick turnaround on the workshopping and development of the show. Um, there is for anyone who saw it at Fringe. Um, we are now not tethered to an hour long, um, you know, slot. So we were able to dig quite a bit deeper into Blake and Clay's, um, you know, who they are as people mm. um where they are coming from you know on top of the the many 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 jokes um and uh i think we really i, I think daniel daniel krolik and i uh who wrote it together um i think we we learned to trust the comedic voice that we have together and that it really um works and uh, that people did really respond to the thing that we were doing um and we learned that um sometimes you if you're doing it responsibly and you're you're doing it from your own experience sometimes you have to just make the damn joke about the thing uh be that you know uh certain um epidemics that have affected the gay community the queer community be that the many horrors and traumas that have been inflicted upon us by um, <laughs> Canadian politics and, uh, you know, the Toronto police force. Um, and sometimes it's, um, you can you, you can just make the joke and people will stick with you if it's coming from a real place. Was that something you were reluctant to do? Uh, to, to go for those jokes? Or was that just something like, fuck it, let's do it? Well, the conversation was always, and the conversation is still with with the two of us creating uh, Blake and Clay, because uh, Blake and Clay are sort of we're discovering a bit of a like sort of Ernest goes to camp thing with Blake and Clay. Like we we think they they are they are now going to become uh, these stock characters that we are. We have many different things we want to do with them, uh, and the conversation was always with those two only ever joke about something that um, directly affects the two of us as writers uh, and that we can speak from, from our own experience. One, uh, because it's always specificity is always funnier. Um, and two, uh, you know, this, um, I think, you know, just don't, don't be, don't be shitty. Um, don't be, don't be shitty if you don't need to be shitty. Um, sometimes you need to be shitty, but um, if you don't need to be, don't, don't do it. Um, and there was never a, um, there, there was never a hesitancy with it. There was never a, oh my God, is this going to be a deal breaker for an audience member? Um because it kept coming back to the fact, like if it is a deal breaker for an audience member, um, that's sort of, that's their, that's their, that's for them to deal with. Um, we are just speaking our damn truths um, as they have historically um, been and as they are currently. Uh, and um, I really, I think Glenn, Glenn Sumi 
really got what we were doing. Um, and he said, he said something along the lines of in his review, uh, you, you know, you're in for a good time when someone in the audience says, whoa, um, which we usually got about once a show it was, uh, there's a few moments in the show where, um, at least one person in the audience would go, ah, uh, as in, uh, oh my God, I don't, I can't believe you just said that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was never, uh, there was, there was never, I think we never wrote anything that we couldn't stand by or that we saw as act as actually harmful. Um, and so there never was a question of like, oh my God, should we pull that back? Um, but yeah, I did always, it was always coming from a place of, um, is this a real thing? Is this a real threat to the queer community? Is this a real, you know, historical issue for us? Then mm. put it in. Is there any audience participation in this show? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I always feel like it's one of those important questions because the the premise sounds like like this is this is like you could uh, uh, have some audience interaction. And some people really dig that, and some people don't. Yeah. Um, where, I mean, what do you when you were deciding who you were going to target for your audience participation, whether it's like one person or a group of people, mm -hmm. how do you make the decision? as to uh, how far to push someone who looks like they don't want to participate or how do you make the choice of, of who you're yeah. going to? I've never been overly interested in a forced audience participation. Um, I just don't think I have any memories of it being a good, like a well-crafted moment in a play or a performance. Like it, it feels like, if you can't get, and you know, maybe this is me being horribly pretentious. Uh, it feels to me like if you can't get the audience to want to participate in the thing, the way that you have curated it and, and created that moment, then you're not doing your job well. And maybe you're forcing the moment and maybe you need to workshop this a bit more uh, because I think the best moments come from um, not um, forcing the audience to interact, but, you know, inviting them to interact in a very, in a, in a very active way. Um, so we don't, there, 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 there is no moment of my, my, my boyfriend is, terrified and nauseous at the idea of audience interaction and i kind of kept coming back to the idea of like is this did i create this in a way that he would still have a good time and this that that, that, that this would not sort of ruin his you know his enjoyment of the show because again i just don't think it's a good very good show if you know we're all about making the audience uncomfortable and i don't think anyone who has seen this show would say that they were comfortable for the entire performance. Um, but the way that we, the way that we created it was we open things up for the audience to participate. And it is more of a group participation um, rather than any one person being implicated or instigated. Um, and then on top of that, the, the invitation that I keep giving to Jonathan Wilson and Daniel Krolik as the performers is they know the show so well there, it is such a low tech show. There's no, there's no pyrotechnics for them to, you know, uh, factor in. There's no, um, there's nothing flying in and off the stage for them to have to no mark for them to have to hit. This is their show to control. And they know it so well that if at any point an audience member wants to engage or they want to engage with an audience member, they can go, to, they can go for it. So like when we were doing the fringe run, um, we were in the, the, the factor, the, the Tarragon extra space, which is a small space, lovely space, wonderful space, um, but small space. And we were very adamant about everybody wearing masks. Um, I don't think you can do a show that 
at any point talks about AIDS or makes an AIDS joke and still be cool with people being maskless during a pandemic. Mm. Um, I think that's a failure on your part. <laughs> um, so we were really uh, adamant about that. So at any point during the show, if the if the boys saw their anyone taking off their masks, they are invited to stop the show. Not even stop the show, really, because they can kind of do whatever they want with these characters to in character, just engage with that person and, you know, say, like, I'm sorry, did we not make enough AIDS jokes for you to get the point of like public health is important? Um, uh, so there's a lot of there's just sort of a baked into the show. There is quite a lot of um, malleability for them to engage with the audience. Mm hmm. Now, I have to ask, because, of course, you know, COVID's not over um, in terms of this show. Any day now, uh, Phil. Are, any day now. I, I know. I know. It's it's going to I can feel it. It's around the corner. Yeah. Um, what about how are you dealing with masks and are you requiring masks for this performance or was that just a fringe thing? We are requiring masks for this performance. This is an even smaller house than we had at Fringe. Mm. Yeah. That's, I mean, I know that folks at the Red Sandcastle are still having, like, they are such a tiny space that um, they, you know, they have HEPA filters, but they're like, we're so, we're such a small space. You have to wear a mask. Yeah. They still get like hate voicemails. Cool. Even after all this time, you know, Fun. it's great. But, um, okay. it, you know, it's important that, um, you know, the front of house yep. is prepared to enforce it. And as the person who is front of house and enforcing mm. that at TPM right now, I, you know, I am happy to say I'm, I'm ready to enforce that, whether I'm, you know, an artist or the person who takes the trash out at the end of the night. Yeah, no. And that was, I mean, one of my frustrations for Fringe, I don't think it's something that volunteers should have had to deal with. But there, I, there were a number of times when I, as an audience member, was frustrated at the abdication of duty of yep. the the paid staff of the fringe yeah. who just let people who were unmasked walk into a space. Yeah. The spaces are so small for the most part that doing so put the artist in danger. And I was, yeah. I was appalled to see situations where uh, somebody on the staff would walk by somebody clearly unmasked and just ignore it yeah i mean i've been i've been in front of house for for front for fringe um and it was pretty astounding to me how quickly i stopped caring um but mm. <laughs> you know um i mean i get it not, i get it because yeah. you get i mean in past years it's been bad enough when like somebody's yelling at you about the 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 latecomers policy um masks. a beautiful tradition for the fringe mm. front of house you know yeah i know one that they dreamed at by yeah. Carol and Craig, who came in from Richmond Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Just to hold the show for me. Hold the show for me. You're right, Carol. Um, You're right, Craig. I, uh, <laughs> no, my, my big issue, um, my, my big issue coming out of um, such unprecedented times was that everybody demanding and sort of bemoaning and speaking such, um, you know, mealy mouthed eloquence about about the importance of live art and we have to get back into the concert halls and we have to get back into the live theater and live music was these are the same people who are, you know, uh, going on and on about the cultural importance and the, of, of these institutions who then show up maskless and yeah. are the first people to take their masks off once the show start. And, you know, mm -hmm. you don't, Carol, you don't care about the art because if you did, you would care about the people making it and yeah. you don't. Yeah. And fine, I can't tell you how to feel about that. Um, but how I feel about that is that you're viewing this cultural thing that you just wax so philosophical about as a another product that you can purchase and, you know, um, you know, this is a this is a commodity to you. Um, you don't actually care about the cultural exchange happening right now. So please stop acting like you do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, for me. It was one thing when people would go to a movie theater and they would, you know, take off their masks. It was shit. It's one of the reasons I didn't go to movie theaters that often. Yeah, me. But um, I saw Dune and was scared the whole time, and not just by <laughs> Timothy Chalamet. 
No, so I I only went to like small theaters. Like if the 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 room was small, I would go when there was nobody there, and and that's the only way I would see movies. Yeah, I just worried that thing... Marvel was gonna. You know, I was like, is Marvel gonna be okay without my money? Should I be? Out I know there it's it's so them? hard to know if Marvel for them will it's, be. Okay. I was like, is Moon Knight gonna turn it out? Is that going to be enough? Like, should we be supporting the the feature releases? Because I it, I can't just rely on my money watching Oscar Isaac running through the desert with a British accent. You know, these are the things I worried about. Of course, I yeah. mean the difference. The difference when people take off their masks in the theater is is you know they're only infecting other audience members who are not going to be there, which is terrible in itself. Totally, totally, but, totally. But yeah. when it's in the live theater. And we saw this in New York, in Broadway, when they were open and audience members, like like cast members were were like out. They're pulling in people who aren't even in that production. They were like flying in somebody from the tour from Chicago to cover a role because yeah. too many cast members are sick. Like though mm. everybody, every actor during the pandemic, every performer puts their physical health on the line. Yeah. Yeah. And audiences They're doing it backwards and in heels, honey. Mm -hmm. They're doing it backwards and in heels and they need you mm -hmm. to wear that mask to protect them. I do think that people who um were so adamant to be maskless are also just very ugly by and large. I think they're very mm. physically unattractive people and I don't understand their need to uncover their face. You had an out, people. <laughs> you finally had an out and you gave it up. You but rallied they gave, they decided it. They decided to give it things like like they would say, like, I don't want to wear a face diaper. Like, that's the thing that's that's like like they're even equivalent. Like, no. And they're spewing shit. And that's the irony. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm For a writer, sure. if you can tell. I can tell. Um, I can tell. I know. I speak such eloquence. Such, you know, <laughs> I speak truth to these situations so beautifully. Um, yeah, it's all infuriating. And I lost my ability to be polite about it quite quickly. Mm. Um yeah. Um, so the Toronto Fringe finishes. At what point did you decide that you wanted to do another run for Gay for Pay with Blake and Clay? Um, the were I, I think that the heterosexuals hadn't been uh, educated quite as much as they should have been, unfortunately, because it was such a small house and tickets did sell out so quickly because we were, uh, a, you know, a runaway success. Um which, you know, for me is every day. Um, so it truly was just another another weekday for me. Um, we wanted, we, we knew that the show had legs, um, uh, you know, covered, these legs were covered in fishnets, they were wearing tap shoes, and they were ready to go. And um, we started to poke around um, and, uh, you know, eventually we, we poked um, the right, I'm so lost in the weeds of my own metaphor allegory right now. <laughs> Mix them up. Mix them up. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, sometimes you just have to answer the question, Curtis. <laughs> um, yeah, we, pretty much immediately we knew that um, there was, you know, we weren't done with this thing. And, and you know, like I said, there's more, even more Blake and Clay that we want to write. Um, so we started looking into it pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, you you booked the streetcar crow's nest, the, the, the smaller of the theaters I, uh, there, I, I assume. Yeah. Well, we didn't book yeah. it. Um, oh. it was, yeah, this was, this is the first time in my, in my career that it was not a, a, a straight up rental. It was, um, we are produced in association with crows. We struck a, we struck a damn deal. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's great. Wild, I know. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a wild ride and, and we're coming back with a, a much more in-depth, I think a much more in-depth show. Um, and, uh, uh, I think it's going to be really fun. It's a really, um, it's a really fun show despite the, all of the politics hanging over it. What's been the what what's it been like working like in association with a theater like Crows? Like as I don't know about you, but I've mostly like produced on my own. So yes. uh what what changes when you're producing in association with a company like Crows? Well, it's you know, they 
they were not able to slot us into their season in any so it is like it's not a it's it's not a full um it's not a rental but it's also not a um a pickup i guess um i know so yeah it is still it's a lot of you know uh gay for gay for pay productions is still um uh putting the coal in the train and um <laughs> uh oh, good god one day i'll answer a question um without <laughs> reverting to such basic imagery uh yeah it is it is it is a middle ground that i we are um you know first first experience for me but we have rachel kennedy from uh from the you know Toronto Theater Ecology, I'm sure many many people know her, uh, who is just whip smart and so 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 savvy, um, who has been um, sort of uh, teaching me how to bridge that gap of like you know self producing but with another company sort of involved and. Uh, yeah, so you know, we we have Rachel Kennedy, thankfully, mm. because it. I mean, it's good that you have that because it is different, like producing for Fringe and then producing outside of Fringe. They are different animals. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You really do. Um, I, I hadn't, I hadn't officially. This was uh, this was officially my first Fringe play, um, and. You know, I had been involved in other productions and other um, bring your own venue shows before, uh, but this was my first. Like, it's a play in the venue. I wrote it and directed it. Come on out. Uh, so I, I, I think you know. Even just today, I was like, oh wow, the the ease of the fringe tent. It truly does get a. It really does a lot of work for you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that you you were sending out press releases uh, earlier today. Um, one of the things that I've generally noticed is um, it is getting harder to uh, uh, get reviews for shows. It's harder yeah. to get media attention yeah. in a landscape, especially with Mooney on theater on, on hiatus, um, with the future of of Now Magazine in the air. Um, it's, it's yeah. so hard to know any of that. So, uh, what do you, what do you like, do we, do you just, do we just like send out, uh, press releases, uh, to the usual and hope they're coming or what's, what's the strategy now that that landscape is changing so drastically? Yeah. Uh, I guess my question to the room is, is it too early to make then jokes when people say now? <laughs> Have we re- no, have we, no, have we crossed not, the not, Okay, not, great. Have we crossed that threshold, I guess is my question. Um <laughs> I um yeah, it's uh I think this sort of um it is a weird moment and I have been sort of like in my own depression uh uh you know about a lot of career stuff lately, but part of it is um I am, you know, I think we all constantly compare ourselves to the generation of theater people who came before us who were living cheaper and, you know, not living in the um, hot Anthropocene, uh, you know, the the throbbing mess that we find ourselves in currently. Uh, And also, you know, could sort of put stuff up quicker and dirtier than than we can now. but we have the internet, Curtis, you tell me. Uh, I know. Um, so I, you know, we are kind of constantly comparing ourselves to that. And then even now, constantly comparing ourselves to, you know, four or five years ago. Um, and the, yeah, the, the, the sand is really shifting beneath our feet so quickly right now. Um, and it's... Our approach to it has been to blast all the usual places, um, work any of the connections that we might have, 
you know, and, and Rachel Kennedy knows everybody. So that is um, a, a, quite the boon. Um, but um, I don't know. I really wish I had an answer for you that wasn't just like keening and screaming and crying. Um, but I think that is my answer. Uh, I, 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 you, oh, okay. Here's, here's an answer. Um, I have really been leaning further into word of mouth uh, than maybe I would have a few years ago. I'm, I've been uh, trying to get um, like uh, internet outreach, like influencer comps. So like people who have a wide internet reach uh, who are maybe of the gay persuasion and funny um, I have been reaching out to them and saying, Hey, we're trying to get funny people out to the show. Uh, I've got some, you know, media comps that I would love to give your way in exchange for like a tweet of our trailer or our poster, um, and trying to use the, uh, you know, warm our hands on the trash fire that is the internet. Uh, a little bit more as we all gather around it and um, watch it burn to the ground. Uh, you know, and while you're over there watching the dumpster fire too, I'm going to say, Hey, have you heard about Blake and clay? <laughs> well done. Well done. Cause I, I, I do think I, I, I know that lots of, lots of artists during this last fringe really felt the, 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 the absence of, yes. of Moonyam Theater and and other yeah. other 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 media outlets, there was lots of 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 there were plenty of people who were reviewing on Twitter. Trash fire that it is, yeah. but um, that's sort of it's harder to get a pull quote out of that. It's harder it's, to get a pull quote, and we also to had find the review. Yeah, we also had people. I have I have bones to pick. Um we had people who had signed up to like have an actual review who showed up late in the run and then sort mm. of just did a tweet when, when we were like, right. Hey, yeah. um, you took media comps from an otherwise sold out run and you didn't give us a review. Mm. What's that about? So like, even, you know, even the ones that you can get to show up yeah. are stretched so thin that maybe they, you fall to the bottom of the basket. Um, but it's so hard yeah. because it is it. I mean, fringe as an artist is a is 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 quite a marathon. I can only imagine what fringe as a reviewer is. I remember many 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 years ago oh, yeah. because I'm an old man. I remember uh, watching uh, the late John Kaplan, um, yeah, uh, uh, arrive at at a show and then leave the show. Uh, pull out this massive, they, they unfolded like a chart. Like this big yeah. chart that had like this grid of where, where what he was doing, and and then he he found where his next show was on that thing, quickly folded that thing up, jumped on a bike, and sped away. And yeah. that was his all day, every day for the fringe. Yeah, and that kind of dedication is is commendable. It's also exhausting. Can we also talk about the fact that he was? somehow managed to just be a lovely and kind person <laughs> the entire time he did that. Yes. Somehow. I, I know. Somehow I have to do like two things in one day and I'm like, I am going to be a bitch. <laughs> this is everyone's fault, but mine. Uh, and he was somehow just wonderfully charming and kind and, you know, really made it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just like giving the monologue that everybody gives about that man, but yeah, um, you know, just I, I think as things get more difficult and more kind of impossible and, you know, uh, as we approach the openings of our own plays thinking, oh, my God, should I quit theater? Should I should I move to the mountains and just sort of, um, you know, uh, eat the bodies of the the many dead hikers that I find Um and sort of a, you know, a scavenging cannibalistic situation. Is that what I should do, Phil? Should I be a cannibal instead of do theater? Uh, I think it's important to remind ourselves that, um, you know, sometimes you can, there, there are people who are kind and 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I yeah, speaking about how I not knowing how he did it, I have to say that anytime that I have done like a fringe marathon and I've scheduled everything for the day, let's say that I'm doing like I have time, I can see, I can from day from morning until night or whenever the fringe starts, I can see a bunch of shows. Yeah. What I always forget to do in my scheduling is schedule time to eat. Oh, and so at some yeah. point in the in the afternoon, I realize that I haven't had lunch as my blood sugar crashes, as my as my mood drops, as everything changes. I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Somehow he managed to 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 go and see all of these shows, be kind and then yeah. and, and not and somehow uh, uh, not have that happen to him. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't know how he does it. I I my blood sugar starts to go. I am finding the nearest fainting couch. I am. <laughs> I'm a Victorian woman bound up in boning and corsets. And you can't tell me that I'm not about to die. Speaking of Victorian women bound up in corsets, I think that would be the most appropriate uh, transition huh, to uh, speaking about your drag alter ego, Alanis Percocet. Please yeah. tell me about Alanis and how you found her. That girl showed up at my door one day. She was knocking on, I have one of those like Marley knockers and she was just going to town on it. And I was like, girl, what? And she walked right into my apartment. And you know what she said to me? Nothing. She just fainted into my fainting couch. <laughs> um, Alanis Percocet is a, a bearded beauty, drag diva, jagged little thrill of Toronto. Um, has she ever left my apartment? I don't think she has. Um, I, uh, I have, I, I had been creating stuff of the, uh, theater performance variety with my friend Merlola Bordeaux. And then this little thing called COVID hit. Um, and it sort of put a, a damp, a damper on some of our plans, um, just sort of a personal inconvenience that we went through. Uh, and Merlola moved to to uh, this place called Winnipeg, which I've heard exists. Um, and we, you know, we had this challenge of like, we still wanted to keep creating stuff together. So we started, uh, I started developing my own drag persona to do a doubles act with Merlola. Um, we do a weekly podcast called Lola and Lonnie. It's about two drag queens who have recently moved to a town populated and built by drag queens. Um, you know, it's sort of a Richard, Richard Scary meets um, John Waters is how I bill it. Um, <laughs> and uh, we local we we interview local um, characters, uh, we sort of, um, we'll pick a topic and just sort of go, uh, this week's episode was about dinosaurs. I don't think we once talked about dinosaurs. Um, I think we spent a lot of the episode talking about Clifford, the big red dog, uh, and his rampage through New York city in last year's Clifford, the big red dog film where he's, it's set in New York. Um, which I, 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 we haven't seen it, but based on the trailer, we think it's sort of a Godzilla style film. Um, uh, I'm trying to about, remember a film version of Clifford the Big Red Dog. Exactly. Apparently, I don't. I don't move in the proper yeah. circles yeah. to have been made aware of that. Yeah. So, if you like podcasts where we talk about Clifford the Big Red Dog's um, inadvertent murder rampage through New York City, where we talk about Elmo, um, I was going to say Elmo the something something like Clifford the Big Red Dog, but what is Elmo? <laughs> He's a monster. He's a little red monster. Oh, he's a little red monster. Uh, if monster. you like podcasts where people talk about um, Elmo as if she's Britney Spears circa 2007. Um, you can't convince then... me that she's not. You can't convince me that she's not. Well, we recently learned that Elmo, uh, in front of the eyes of the paparazzi, went into a salon and ha and shaved her whole body. <laughs> red hair everywhere. Um, it, the it, red furred creatures was sort of the theme of the episode. Um so if that is that a, if that is of any interest to you, uh, spoken by two men with full-on facial hair who you can't convince are not beautiful, big, big-breasted women, uh, then that's the show for you. Uh, yeah, 
I don't see how anyone could resist. I don't see how anyone could resist. Yeah, we started. I started doing some video drag stuff. I, I, I started a YouTube page for Alanis Percocet. Uh, I haven't touched in a while because I'm a, a, a huge fringe uh, success. Uh, so I don't have time for YouTube. Um, but uh, I think my last video, I talked about Disney gays, Disney adult gays, uh, caring for your Disney gay. Um, I did a video on season two of What If, Marvel's What If. Um, uh, I think there was like, what if the Hulk had IBS? Um, what if... Um, what if uh, Captain Marvel teamed up with Rachel Hollis and did a wash your face girl um, sort of collab? Uh, you know, uh, I, I basically I just take pop culture things and put them in a blender um, to my own delight. I mean, if you can't entertain yourself, who are you entertaining? Oh, I exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. I think but I do think that is a like that's the thing that um, Daniel and I keep coming back to as we create gay for pay is it's been that was sort of the, the lesson I one of the lessons I had from fringe this year was um, if you're right while while I am writing comedy the I think the, the most surefire way for me to write is to have someone that I am trying to make laugh um, and uh, having Daniel Krolik on the other end of a zoom call um trying to make you know trying to make him give me more than a uh, i guess that's funny uh was sort of the thing that made the script come together for me nice yeah um and just to just as we're closing off here just to 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 make sure that everybody is cleared so we have a gay for play gay for pay i keep wanting to insert like the the allen in anyway gay for, gay pay for play, play maybe play. that'll be one of the many sequels Maybe it will. Yeah. Gay for play. Yes. Gay for play. Gay for pay with Blake and Clay is at Streetcar Crow's Nest from November the 16th to the 27th. Is that right? Yeah. Perfect. Curtis, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for, for having this conversation with me. Oh, my God. You're so welcome. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember... If you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at Stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is PhilRickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.